Well, I, yeah, as Gabe said, my name is Ian, and I am so overjoyed to get together with you guys today. Um, we've been visiting different Calvary family churches, and every church we come to, it just feels like we're coming home. And so thank you for your welcoming spirits, um, and yeah, thank you for having me. Um, before we, my wife and I launched out to, to South Asia, uh, I was a, a pastor elder at Calvary Wellspring in Aurora. And so we've gotten to know uh, the Calvary family and, and your passion for wanting to make Jesus not ignorable um, here, but also to the ends of the earth. Um, and we really felt like the Lord was calling us long term for possibly the rest of our life um, to South Asia. Um, the country where we serve currently um, is really unlike any place that we've been visiting this summer. Um, one by population. So the country that we serve in um, has 180 million people in it. Um, and actually, it's, the, it's half the size of Colorado with 180 million people that live there. Or another way to put it is the size of Iowa with half the population of the U.S. Very, very dense uh, country. And we live in the most dense part of that country in a megacity right in the center. Um, it's also different than any place we've been visiting by demographics. The country that we live in is a majority Muslim country. Um, the official stats are 90% Muslim, 8% Hindu, and 2% Buddhist. And the believing Christian population is uh, 0.01%. And so as we've come home to share about this, we just want to do what, what Paul did um, as he went out. Um, you look in the scripture, it says, Paul... Uh, upon arriving in Antioch, they called the church together and reported everything God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the nations as well. And so today, I want to report to you guys um, about our work in South Asia, but I also want to speak to all of us about this high calling that we all have to make disciples to the ends of the earth, to make disciples among all nations. And I want to invite you guys into this work. Now, rather than just throwing up poverty pictures or guilt-inducing statistics uh, that might motivate you for a little while, I would rather unpack for you the motivation and the definition of missions that we see in the Bible in the life of Paul. So that's what I hope to do today. Before we get into that, let me pray again, and then we'll jump into the text. Lord Jesus, I am so in awe of what you've done for all of us, Lord, your grace in our lives, Lord. I pray today that we would um, our affections for you would be kindled, that we'd love you more, we'd know more about what you did for us. Um, and Lord Jesus, um, be with me now, Lord, as I speak your words to your people for your glory here and to the ends of the earth. Amen. So the passage that we had read um, is, of course, the first, the opening section in the book of Romans. It's, it's a rich book, the book of Romans. It's one of my favorites, actually. Now, Romans isn't necessarily a book that you might think of when you think about missions. Perhaps when you think about Romans, you think about getting lost in some heavy theology or one of Paul's many long run-on sentences. Maybe that's what you think of. And rightfully so, because Romans is packed with the fullest declaration and unpacking of the gospel in the first eight chapters. And so you might think that a theologian's favorite book might be um, Romans rather than a missionary's. But for us and our family, this is why this book is why we named our son Roman. However, rather than simply just being a deep theological treatise of the gospel, Romans um, in reality has missions and apostleship as a main focus of the whole letter. One commentator has noted that in all the letters of Paul, 
The introduction functions as a thematic introduction into the main purpose of the letter. And here, Paul lays out two overarching themes. Maybe you saw them highlighted um, as we read the scripture. A, A call, there it is. A call to take that message to the ends of the earth. First, the gospel, a call to take that message to the ends of the earth. Now, um, additionally, we see that the book of Romans is, among many other things, a support letter uh, to the church in Rome. If you've ever received one of those from a missionary, you know what I'm talking about. Paul is using this letter to ask the church in Rome to send him on to the farthest unreached parts of the earth. For him, Spain. At the end of the book, after 15 chapters of thick wonderful gospel theology, he returns again to the theme of missions, and he says to them, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a little while. And then later, I go to Spain by way of you or by your help. Well, then why is Romans packed with all the intricacies and excellencies of salvation and of election? Well, that's because in the mind of Paul, you cannot separate the two. You see, it's the weighty and the beautiful first eight chapters, or rather the whole first 14 chapters, that call Paul to make an ask to the church in Rome that they might send him on towards Spain. The beauty and the serious consequences of the gospel are the reason that all the nations, that Paul longed to go to all the nations, and that he, why he would ask the church in Rome to send him on towards Spain. And likewise, for us, the major content of this book, the gospel, is the reason why my family or many others that I know, would leave the pristine streets of Aurora, which that's a joke, by the way, (laughs) and move to a place like a megacity in South Asia. You see, the grace of Jesus is the source, the means, and the end of mission. And this is just the connection that I want to make for us today. As we mentioned, in the first of the many thick, theologically thick, run-on sentences, uh, Paul sets up the overall theme of the whole book. He names explicitly two concepts. Look with me in your Bible at verse 5. This is where I want to hone in on today. He says, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. You see them there? Two things, grace and apostleship. From Jesus, we have received grace. And that is true, and that is amazing. Now, grace is a word that we definitely associate with the Christian life. You go to a Christian bookstore, if those exist still, and you see decorations with the word grace on there, but you don't see this second word, apostleship, displayed so decoratively. But right there together, Paul puts them together. From Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship. And these are the two things that I want to talk about and connect for us. First is grace. Now, Paul starts uh, by introducing himself in verse 1. Look there. Saying, Paul, a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now, if this sounds like Paul is talking about his impressive resume, uh, let's remember who we are dealing with here. Paul, in another place, would refer to himself as the chief of sinners. Now, Paul knows that everything he is now or might be is because of grace alone. Grace meaning kindness and undeserved favor from the Lord. Now, as you remember, Paul was a persecutor of the church. 
He oversaw the, the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr. As it says in Acts 8, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now, I think of my life before I followed Jesus, and it was much like Paul's, not to the degree, but, but in the nature. See, I was an atheist. I grew up in a non-Christian home, taught to be an atheist. And by the time I got to high school, I was a God-hating atheist. I hated religion. And in high school, I used to love to debate with Christians uh, and love to just kind of rip their arguments to shreds, make them cry. That was my goal. And in college, as a biology major, I became even more solidified in this viewpoint. Uh, so much so that one time there was somebody miraculously on our campus standing up sharing about Jesus in front of about 60 people. And me being the god hating atheist that I was, stood up and said, how could you believe this? You're an idiot in front of all these people. This was who I was. But like Paul, God began to, by grace, rescue me and put people in my life that shared the gospel with me. And like Paul, I had a Damascus Road experience as I read the Bible and the scales fell from my eyes. Praise Jesus. Now, you know the story for Paul. By absolute undeserved kindness of the grace of the Lord, he revealed himself to Paul while he was on the road to Damascus, while he was on the road to persecute followers of Jesus. And for a while he was blind. Nobody would help him. Yet God called a man named Ananias to go and to place his hands upon him. And at first, Ananias was saying, I'm not going anywhere near that guy. He was skeptical. But God said to him this, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the nations and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And Ananias went, and then Paul, after receiving its sight, it says this about him, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. He immediately went into preaching. See, he didn't wait for further schooling or further instruction. The prerequisite and the qualification for his ministry was that he had experienced radical grace, and he had. As seen in the life of Paul, those that have had the most radical experience with grace and forgiveness in their lives are often the ones that are the loudest when it comes to proclaiming that grace to others. Oh, how much I want this in my life. Oh, how much I want this for this church and every church that we might visit. Now, after experiencing the grace of the Lord, Paul now represents himself here as a servant of Christ Jesus. And as I said before, this word means slave. Paul was now bound to serve Jesus, not out of a sense of repayment, but because he had received so much that now he was eternally bound to him and his cause in the world. See, after receiving radical grace, the once persecutor was now proclaimer. Now, you might think of Paul as a special kind of case in the Bible. Well, that's Paul, of course. But in reality, his example is only an archetype for all of mankind. Though he was a persecutor of Jesus and a murderer, by our sin, all the world is in just as much need of forgiveness um, and grace. Everyone in this room is in the same boat as Paul, apart from grace. You see, the whole world is cut off from a holy and righteous God who is just and right to punish our sin. And left to ourselves, we would rightly, as it says in another place, be by nature objects of wrath. And if all things were right and just, we would stay that way forever and ever and ever. And this is why quickly in Romans, Paul gets into explaining this drastic situation that the whole world is in. 
Look with me at verse 18 if you're following along. This is a verse that you guys know. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so as it says, God gave them over to a depraved mind. All of mankind's knowledge of God is enough to condemn them, but not enough to save them. The whole world is in need of saving, in need of a removal of the punishment of our sin. Now, when I read this passage, I can't help but think about the part of the world where we live, South Asia, where every day millions are literally doing this, exchanging the glory of God for symbols resembling men and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, imagine with me this scene from the Kaligat Temple in the heart of Calcutta, India, a temple to the god of Kali, one of the few in the city that still does animal sacrifice every day. Now imagine this, long lines of people just standing in the rain for hours just for a chance to spend a few minutes in the temple before the idol to say a prayer blessing on their life. Or imagine, as what I saw when I was there, a small girl, maybe five years old, leading in her family's goat by leash into the priest to be sacrificed. Now when the priests get the ghosts around the goat, the large crowds would gather, just hoping to see the act of sacrifice. And then, as the priest raises his knife, the crowds begin to chant, and then the knife drops, blood splatters. The family cheers for joy. The crowds start to push forward just to get some of the blood from the goat to, to put onto their foreheads or onto their bodies just to absorb some of the blessing. And then the five-year-old girl grabs the severed head of the goat and walks off. And then the priest yells, next! And this continues all day. Or imagine this, uh, a man hears the loud call to prayer and he gets his mat and he begins to walk to the mosque. It's a long walk to the mosque, but he knows that the longer the walk, the more favor he gets from Allah. As he goes, he tries to say in his heart, Allah, 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 with every step, knowing that if he does that more and more, he might get more favor from Allah. And as he gets to the mosque, he begins his ritual washing, knowing that Allah would not receive his prayer if he didn't. And then inside the mosque, he recites memorized prayers in a language that he does not understand, being very careful to do the right movements and the right gestures so as to make his prayer acceptable to Allah. And as he prays, he bows and he touches his forehead to the ground to show his reverence to Allah, but he does it so vigorously, so hard, either out of um, fear or misplaced devotion that bruises or, or blood is often seen on men's foreheads as they leave the mosque. And then imagine doing this five times a day, so much so that some men often have a permanent bruise on their forehead from pushing their head so hard into the ground. And what is more, imagine doing this all the while knowing that even if you went every day and you never missed a prayer time, and even if you did all the other requirements of, of the Islamic religion, that nobody can be sure, not even their own prophet, whether they'll be in heaven at the end of their life. See, the world is lost, confused, and cut off from God. And there are billions of people who live out these two realities every day. Now imagine with me the real place of where we live, a megacity 
in South Asia with 18 million people, a city that is only geographically 10 miles by 10 miles with 18 million people shoved inside there. As I said, the believing population of the country is 0.01%. And that means that out of 10,000 people that you might see, one of them might know about Jesus. Just one. It's a city so full of people and lostness. Often as I'm walking around, I'm just looking at the crowds and I'm thinking, how many people have ever really truly heard about Jesus? That Jesus is more than just a Muslim prophet but that he is truly the Savior. How many people have heard that? And by statistics, the answer is always zero. Now, what would Jesus do if he saw such a city? Well, we know because we've read the rest of Romans. We know that he would provide grace by means of his own sacrifice. I like to imagine Jesus climbing a tall tower in the city or maybe taking an elevator there. I'm looking down and saying, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her young under her wings and you were not willing And then as it shows in another place, weeping, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And we'd weep too, like Jesus, if we knew fully the travesty that nearly all of the people in that city, 18 million of them, know the first part of Romans in their very own soul, but they don't know the power of God to save in the gospel, which is the highlight of our text. Look at verse 2. The gospel of God which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, they don't know what God had promised, that he had waited patiently for the time not to just send a prophet, but to send his own son to come down and die by the hands of sinful men and then be declared to be the savior of the world by raising from the dead. They don't know. They don't know, as it says in Romans 3, that even though all have turned aside, together all have become worthless, no one does good, not even one, that God would provide enough grace to cover them all. And furthermore, they don't know that he would be a, as it says, a propitiation for our sins by his blood, that he would take our place, take our wrath in himself, dying in our place, even while we were still sinners. And they don't know that the curse that was against us is now lifted. And as it says in the crescendo of the book of Romans, Romans 8, that There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus ever again. And that in Jesus, no one, no thing could ever separate us from the love of God. But you are a Christian and you know this. And if you are a Christian and you know these wonderful truths, you know that you've received grace. But know this, that this is a grace that pushes us in a direction. Because according to this example in Romans, we've received with grace another thing, apostleship. You see, he would graciously lay down his life for us, die the death that we deserve, but then powerfully be resurrected, showing that his grace can make the dead alive. It can make the sinner saved. It can make the lost found. And it can make those who are utterly unworthy recipients of grace. And by that grace, he transforms persecutors into apostles, rulers into servants, fishermen into fishers of men, alcoholics into pastors, and foolish college students into missionaries. So we have received grace, and with that second, apostleship. Now, I believe when Paul says this word, apostleship, he has a specific thing in mind, which we will unpack in a bit. But for now, it suffices to say that the word apostle means, in its most basic sense, a message bearer, an emissary for another, one that comes on behalf of another to relay a message. 
See, with that, we receive the gospel of grace, and then we become an ambassador of that message immediately. And as Paul puts them together here, side by side, Paul makes the point that for him and for us, we can't have one without the other. If you are a Christian, if you know that you've received grace and forgiveness from Jesus, you are, in a generic sense, an apostle, a message bearer. See, the grace that you've experienced through the gospel that was promised beforehand about the resurrected son is not entirely for you. It was grace in a direction. It was for others. It was for those in your family that don't know him. It was for your classmates or for your coworkers or for your neighbors or for that person you're thinking of right now in your head. And it would be crazy if the grace worked differently, if it was otherwise, right? That we, like everybody else in the world, might be in such a debt to God by our sin but then by grace, the debt is just fully paid by our Lord. And then we are thankful. We join a church. We come regularly, but we don't really ever think about telling others. We just kind of keep it to ourselves. Wouldn't that be a strange thing? Therefore, those strange people, those radicals, those people that we often think of and label as radicals, you know the ones I'm talking about. The ones that are so passionate about evangelism that everywhere they go, they speak about Jesus. We often think about them as strange, but those aren't the strange ones. Rather, the ones that know the kindness, love, and grace of Jesus, and then don't think it's so important to share that with others, that's strange. Those are the radicals, the radically selfish. But perhaps this scenario is not even possible, a Christian that, that doesn't want to do this. Charles Spurgeon, who has been called my historical doppelganger, uh, puts it strikingly this, saying this, a quote I've shared many times but bears repeating, if Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will be whispering it into your child's ear. You will be telling it to your husband. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. Recollect that. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. That man who says, I believe in Jesus, but does not think enough of Jesus ever to tell another about him by mouth or pen or tract is an imposter. If thou knowest Christ, thou art as one that hath found honey. Thou wilt call others to taste of it. Be wise in your generation, and speak of him in fitting ways and at fitting times, and so in every place proclaim the fact that Jesus is most precious to your soul. See, Paul knew this in his own life and calling, but he also knew that this call to live our life for the purposes of God and his glory lays upon every Christian because of the very nature of the gospel. One theologian said this, so according to Paul, why should ordinary Christians preach the gospel? Because they have been swept up into the triumphant advance of God's saving word. It's as if Paul's congregation had fallen into the river of God, God, the gospel's flooding advance. The idea of not being carried downstream is unthinkable. And this is something that is for everybody. Just a few months ago, um, I got to have a really amazing experience, which was at what I would think of as the ends of the earth. You know, the Bible says, go to the ends of the earth, and it felt like we were in a village that was at the end. It was in a village about 10 hours outside of the main city in our country, and we were gathered together in a partially constructed concrete room with about 15 Muslim background believers, and it was a very interesting group. Let me set the picture for you. All of them were extremely poor. Most of them were illiterate farmers. 
One guy decided um, he has a really big, long wizard beard, had a staff with a dragon head carved into it, walking into our meeting. Another guy had a 10 to 20 pound goiter on his neck that was really painful for him, but he was there at our meeting. Uh, There was a trans person there who had recently believed in Jesus and found acceptance in this very small community at the ends of the earth. And there was a very short man, I think you can see in the picture, who earlier in the day, as we were going about doing the ministry, started to yell at us and was being very forceful, demanding money from us, and villagers would come and take him away. And so we leaned into what he was saying, and we started to talk to him, and we found out that he had some mental issues related to the fact that every 15 minutes or so, he would have a seizure. And as we were talking to him, he began to have a seizure, and he would go away for about 30 seconds and then come back. And we got to share the gospel with him, and also the fact that Jesus can, uh, by his power, heal him of these seizures right then and there. And this person, for the first time in his life, decided he wanted to pray to be healed of his seizures to Jesus. And he wanted more than that. He wanted to be forgiven of his sins through Jesus. And so this person, 10 minutes before we started a meeting, was sitting in front of us. Now, if you had this experience where it's just this group, one light bulb, and a Bible, what would you say to them? Well, you might be tempted to say, you guys kind of have it rough. You're kind of a motley crew. Um, Why don't you guys just try to get together every once in a while, do church, and try to just encourage each other? Or, you know, you might say, you know, you guys can't really do much. Maybe just kind of do some stuff. We'll, We'll send in some real professionals to do it. But no, absolutely not. That's not what we'd say to them. I told them what I tell every Christian. If thou knowest Christ, thou art as one that hath found honey. Not exactly in those words, but essentially the same heart. Saying... If, God, if you've been graciously and miraculously saved, God has given you a high calling and a precious privilege to make him known in your village and to the ends of the earth. One of the sweetest moments was that after our meeting concluded, that man with the painful goiter, you can see him in the picture, um, he said, I'm going right now to the mosque and I'm going to preach Jesus. The grace of God, the gospel of Jesus, is a river rushing outward Will it stop with you? Every graciously saved Christian is compelled to share this news with others in their sphere of influence. It's not meant to stop with us. It's supposed to go through us to others. But it should not even just stop there. The gospel is not meant to just stay in your locale. It's not just meant to go just to your neighbor or to your friend, but rather something bigger, perhaps, is at stake here. Paul says in our text that that long-foretold grace of God is a grace in a direction, and that direction is toward the nations all the way to the ends of the earth. Now, in our text, Paul says that this gospel of God had been promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Well, let's look at one of the first places this gospel promise is said. Turn with me or look on the screen to Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This is God's covenant with Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, Abram was a man who lived in modern-day Iraq, worshiping the moon god Nana, but God graciously, apart from anything he did, chose him and blessed him but not just for him and his family, far beyond all the way into all the families of the earth. Even from the very beginning, it has always ever been about getting the gospel to all nations. 
all the time in the Old Testament, the right heart of those who would receive blessing was that they would go far beyond themselves, even to the ends of the earth. The right heart of those who receive grace is that of the psalmist in Psalm 67, who writes this, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. But why? In verse 2, that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And this is why Paul says that from Jesus we have received grace, and with that apostleship, and that apostleship is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And this is what I want to spend the rest of our time on, explaining the specific work and motivation of apostleship, or as we might call it today, missions or frontier missions. Now, I do believe when Paul says apostleship or that he was called to be an apostle, that he has a specific type of work and calling in mind. Now, this calling was, of course, to evangelism because he said he was set apart for the gospel of God. And it was, of course, global-sized because he said it was among all nations. But it's even more specific than that. To see Paul's specific calling, turn with me in Romans to chapter 15. In verse 20, Paul clearly says what his specific calling is. He says, And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So Paul's calling is to go to places where Jesus is not yet known. In modern missionary terms, this is to go to the places that are unreached, the unreached peoples of the world. But it's not just going there and staying there and doing ministry there, because in actually the verse right before, verse 19, he adds to that saying, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Fulfilled the ministry. What does he mean? He says he's fulfilled the ministry from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. Well, that's Jerusalem all the way to modern-day Croatia, basically all the way to Italy. And Paul says that he has to go to Rome because um, in verse 23, again, I no longer have any room for work in these regions. What, what in the world could Paul mean by that? Does that mean that, that Paul had evangelized all the people from Jerusalem to Rome or that everyone was Christian? Or or does it mean that by that time everybody had just heard the gospel? No. It means that Paul saw his job as an apostle missionary to be the tip of the spear, so to say, in the advance of God's gospel to the ends of the earth. To go to unreached regions, share the gospel, make disciples, and then establish a church. And not stay there to pastor that church, but rather to appoint others to lead that church and to call that church to do the normal work of sharing the gospel in their locale. And then when that's set up, to leave and go onward to where Christ has not yet been named. And so in that large area from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, not everybody were believers in Jesus, but there were believers in Jesus there. And there were churches there who were able to represent Jesus and minister to and share the gospel with the rest. See, for the apostle or for missionaries today, the chief reason in going is not just to go to a faraway place and share the gospel. Um, the chief concern is a matter of access to the gospel. You see, the, the two examples I gave you of that Hindu family with their goats or that Muslim man with his mat and his bruised forehead, it's not that those are somehow more shocking or more sinful than your happy, well-fed suburban neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. Uh, they're not. Nor does it mean that those two need Jesus more than your neighbor. They don't. 
The point is that for that Hindu family and that Muslim man, they likely do not have access at all to the gospel. They do not even have an opportunity to hear. Like if they just woke up and had a dream or a premonition to find out about who Jesus was, they wouldn't know where to look. They wouldn't have anyone to properly tell them. There's no church there to tell them. No trunk or treats, no VBSs, no mission-focused cookouts, no carnivals. Now, it is a travesty that there are so many in the world that don't know about Jesus, but in today's day and age, it's a scandal that there are still so many who have no access at all even to the gospel. So many people that are classified as unreached, having less than 2% of a believing population in their community, or worse, those that are unengaged, unreached people groups where there are no missionaries, no work, no known believers at all. Now, in the world today, there are 6,825 unreached people groups. And still more shocking, there are 3,000 unengaged, unreached people groups. See, Paul's calling was not just to cross-cultural evangelism, but to go among the unreached, plant churches among them that are able to do the normal work of sharing the gospel in their locale. This is the specific work of an apostle. And this is the specific work that my wife and I are called to, to take the gospel to the unreached at the ends of the earth in our country. The people group that we serve in South Asia is the largest unreached people group in the world. 150 million people with little to no access to the gospel. Now, when we first went there, we had a great ambition. God had put a number in my heart, and, and he gave me a lifetime goal of wanting to see 500 disciples made, and that would be amazing. But as we begin to understand the enormity of the task in a city of 18 million or in a country of 180 million, we realized this was far too little a goal. What might be better is rather than 500 disciples, 500 churches, 500 churches that are trained and equipped to do the work of normal ministry in their area and also to send out others. But in the grand scheme, this is still too little a goal. In addition to the work in the city, uh, a team of workers who have also been sent from Calvary, about five others, including seven including my wife and I, we're in charge of a portion of the country, one-sixth of the whole country, that has another 16 million people in it. And just in that area alone, there are 8,000 villages. On average, each village has 15 to 20,000 people in them. 8,000 small towns of 20,000 people or so. Now, if like Paul, we want to see a sustainable gospel witness, then we need to see at least one church in every village. That's over 8,000 churches. Right now, as far as the people we lead and we oversee, we work with seven church planning partners, and there's nine churches among them. And we also have about five discipleship groups that over the next year or two, we hope to turn in to churches. There is so much work to do. Would you join with us and pray as we work towards 500 on the way towards 8,000? Now, whether we get there or not is in God's hands. And it's no matter because we are not motivated by numbers, but by something far greater and that is God's glory. In our text, Paul says that we have this apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith, but why does he say it? Why do we have this? For the sake of his name among all the nations. See, that is the motivation. For the sake of his name. Apostleship is not primarily for the sake of the salvation of individuals, but that God's name might be praised all the way to the ends of the earth. See, John Piper, a pastor, had rightly said, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Uh, missions is not for world reform. It's not to win the culture war. 
It's not to make Christian the pagan places, primarily. It's not to build a following or a ministry for ourselves. And it's not firstly that people might be saved, but for Paul, the apostle, and for missionaries today, and indeed for all of us, the ultimate motivation is that God might be praised among every nation. Now, my wife and I, we go to South Asia, not primarily that South Asians might be saved and served, but because God alone is worthy of their affection, not the cold ideology of Allah or the wooden statues of Kali. And we know that getting to graciously worship Jesus, that is the sweetest and the most joyful thing in the world and beyond. Oh, that God's glory might cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Oh, that we might be a part of that great picture at the end of time, Revelation 7, 9, where it says this, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I love this, a worship service. That's what we're after. That all of the nations are crying out, grace, grace, because somebody who also had experienced that grace took the gospel to them across the street to their neighbor, across town to that place where nobody goes, um, or even from Denver all the way to the ends of the earth. Church, isn't this what we long for? A grace, that God might be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, but then apostleship, that his way may be known on the earth, his saving power among all nations. Won't you go, whether short-term or long-term, for the sake of his name? Church, we're just a, tr- a short 20-hour plane ride away from a place where there is little to no gospel presence. What's preventing us from going? What's preventing you from going? Now, to be sure, not all people are called to this kind of apostleship or frontier missions, but to be sure, some are. Are you? If you truly are, or if right now you're feeling the stirring that maybe perhaps this is something I should think about, come see me afterwards. We'll have a table in the back. We have some things to give you, a prayer card and things like that. But beyond just our ministry, I want to share with you one thing I do for the Calvary family. I lead a missionary training program, missionary training cohort. It's about a year or two years with the hope that we could walk with you through this process of deciding whether you're called to missions or not, and then at the end of it, send you out. And if that interests you at all, come speak to me, or you can email missions at thecalvary.org. Now, um, beyond whether or not you were called to this, the bigger question is, do you care? Are you interested in what's going on? You see, the nations worshiping Jesus is the chief concern of God's heart. Is it yours? John Piper, again, what a guy, um, has rightly said this. There are only three kinds of Christians when it comes to world missions. Zealous goers, zealous senders, and then disobedient. Are you a goer? Praise the Lord. Are you a sender? Praise the Lord. Are you a zealous sender by fervently praying for what's going on at the front lines, by reading updates that you might get from missionaries, by giving of your time and and financially, or by giving encouragement to the people that have been called to the front lines? And just by your excitement and your eagerness to know what's going on at the front lines, we want to know, is God's name being made famous, not ignorable there? Now today, I don't know where you are, I don't know exactly what might hit you from this message, but I do know this, that in the gospel of Jesus, we receive grace, and we receive with that an invitation to make him, home, make him known 
make him non-ignorable here and to the ends of the earth. But beyond all of that, today I just want to ask, uh, won't you receive anew the grace of God? Maybe this is where you are, uh, a, a persecutor, a God-hater, or maybe you're just somebody that's just along for the ride doing this Christian thing. But know today that there is grace. And if you do know this grace, won't you speak about him here in your city, in your neighborhood, and, and also won't you go and send to the nations? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I am overwhelmed at just your grace in our lives. I'm overwhelmed, Lord, that you've gathered us here with the common theme that we are sinners saved by grace, Lord. Lord, I, I ask, Lord, that um, among us, Lord, that you would continue to send out more and more people to the ends of the earth, Lord, for your glory, for nobody else's. Lord, thank you so much for the fact that this church is on mission right here. Lord, I pray for their ministry tomorrow, Lord. I pray for their normal ministry throughout the week, Lord. Would you appoint gospel conversations, Lord, that you might be famous here and to the ends of the earth. Amen.